If you turn with me for our sermon text this evening, there will be two texts actually uh, related to each other in the book of Hebrews, uh, part in chapter 2 and part in chapter 4. We'll begin by reading Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 18, and then we'll skip over to chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Beginning then with Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, give attention to the reading of God's holy word. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And Again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Turning over to chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God's holy word. Well, brothers and sisters, this evening I want to look together at the subject of perfect sympathy. Perfect sympathy, and in particular, the perfect nature of the sympathy that Christ has for us, as reflected upon in these two passages Everyone appreciates being understood by those who are close to them, receiving their sympathy when they're going through something difficult. And amazingly, the the Bible says, Scripture says, that uh, Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, Christ sympathizes with us in just the right way, just the way that we need, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our temptation. And what follows, we'll explore this wonderful truth together a bit. Now, there are many things that we don't know about the letter to the Hebrews, as we just think about the letter for a moment. Uh, We don't know who the author of the letter was with any certainty. Uh, We don't know much about the audience, really, in any detail. They're not directly named. Uh, But one thing is unmistakably clear, that the audience of this letter faces a great temptation. In fact, we could say the audience that this letter was written to faces the greatest temptation that you can possibly face as a Christian, the temptation to give up their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They had evidently experienced persecution before. 
Uh, it appears to be persecution by uh, Rome in some form or fashion. Chapter 10, uh, verses 32 and following show us that. And the threat of possibly experiencing that same kind of persecution again is most likely what is shaking them in their confidence, shaking their confidence in Christ. And so the author writes to them to exhort them to stay strong, not to fall away from Christ, because Christ provides abundantly for what they need because he's a perfect, sufficient high priest. Now in our passages this morning, or this evening rather, uh, one particular aspect of how Christ is a perfect high priest comes very prominently to the fore, namely the way that as our priest he sympathizes with us. Now there's a lot more in both of these passages, but I want to focus on that element that appears in each of them. The perfect nature of Christ's sympathy that he provides for us, and then along with that, what that perfect sympathy calls us to do in response, how it calls us to live. We'll look at three ways in which the the word perfect applies properly to Christ's sympathy for us. And the first one is this. Christ's sympathy for us is perfect in that it is complete. It is total. As I'm sure we probably all know, but uh, we certainly uh, always need to be reminded, Christ, the eternal Son of God, does not stand far away from us uh, as if he's somebody who can't relate to us, as different as he is in some sense, being God, yet in his humanity in particular as we focus on that, he can relate to us and he does. He has joined our situation, he's joined our human predicament fully in every way except not joining us in our sin, which wouldn't help us at all anyway if he did that. His sympathy is perfect then in that it's a comprehensive sympathy. It's a complete sympathy. And our passages here highlight several ways in which Christ joins our situation as humans uh, and so is able to sympathize. For starters, he It says that he partakes fully of our humanity. Chapter 2, verse 11 says that he and we are from one source, meaning having one humanity. Chapter 2, verse 16 says that Christ is of the seed of Abraham. Christ didn't come to earth as an angel or merely as a spirit, uh, but he uh, became one of us, uh, fully man as well as fully God, so that he could help us. In addition, Christ also sympathized with with us, our passages tell us, because he partook not just of our humanity, but of the weakness of our humanity. Uh, This is part of what it means when it says that he took our flesh and blood, chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. It is as we are composed of flesh and blood that we are vulnerable, that we are mortal, Uh, that we experience all the various weaknesses to which God and angels, who are not flesh and blood but only spirit, uh, they are not subject. But Christ in his humanity did experience uh, this weakness and and, uh, to the full. He did not come to earth uh, as some kind of superman, uh, different in kind from us with regard to his humanity, Uh, His humanity was the same as ours, including with regard to this very basic feature of our created weakness. Further, Christ also joined our situation by entering into our suffering. 
The passages make this clear as well. He came as a servant. He did not come to lead a life of privilege, but instead was a man of sorrows. Chapter 2, verse 18 says that he suffered while on earth. Chapter 2, verse 10 says that this suffering made him perfect. Now, it's a challenging way of speaking, but uh, that phrase doesn't mean that Christ was ever disobedient or sinful and then became obedient and sinless over time through suffering. It's not what that means. It means instead that suffering made Christ perfect as our high priest. It made him perfect for that task. He would not be a perfect high priest for us in the way that he is if he had not suffered because he would not be sympathetic with us in precisely the way that we need him to be in precisely the way that he is. More than this, Christ not only suffered in a general way while on earth, but he also experienced the suffering of severe temptation. He understands firsthand what the crossroads of the testing of sin is like. And not just in a mild or passing way, uh, no, chapter 4, verse 15 says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are. And chapter 2, verse 18 tells us that the temptation that he underwent was severe. It was something that he suffered under as he fought against it. Finally, Christ experienced our human condition, joined our situation even by enduring death itself, as chapter 2, verse 14 describes. Jesus was not whisked away at the last moment before death. He drank the cup of sorrows, the cup of God's wrath, all the way to the bottom, going in himself into the depths of the grave, not for his own sin, but for ours. All of this helps show, then, various ways in which Christ's sympathy with us is complete, His sympathy is perfect because, as chapter 2, verse 17 says, he's been made like us in every respect except being without sin. Clearly then, brothers and sisters, whatever it is that we may bear up under during this life by way of difficulty, by way of weakness, trial, grief, etc., Christ understands And he understands fully. Jesus Christ is not unmoved by your situation or your difficulty or your plight. He's not ignorant. He's not distant. He understands personally and directly what your difficulty is like, what your trial is like, because he himself has undergone the very same kinds of things. Sometimes it's tempting for us to think about God merely with regard to his transcendence, his greatness, his superiority to us, his being far off. God is indeed holy and he is indeed majestic. He has no need of us as creatures. All of that's true, but it's not the entire truth. There's more also. We worship a God who is great in his compassion. And he's provided a perfect mediator for us. God's own son knows by firsthand experience what it is that we struggle with during this life. He's perfectly sympathetic with us. Secondly, 
the sympathy of Jesus Christ for us as his people is perfect, not only because it's complete, it's, uh, it's uh, comprehensive, but also because it is a sinless sympathy, a perfect uh, sympathy in that it is sinless and holy. Christ's sympathy is not a sympathy that condones or promotes sin, but instead one that helps us to resist sin. Our passage shows clearly that the design and the purpose of Christ's sympathy is not to commiserate with us in our sin, but to keep us from sin. The warnings of chapter 4, 12, and 13, just before the section that we read, are particularly sobering here. It says, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Clearly then, as the passage continues in chapter 4, when verse 16 says, Christ is there to help us in our time of need, it especially means that he's there to help us resist the sin that would defile us in God's sight. Christ's sympathy is perfect then because it does not indulge our sin or entertain it, but helps us to strive against it, helps us to not give in. When we read that Christ's sympathy helps us resist sin, I think that we have to step back and confess that this is not always the way we think about sympathy. The concept of sympathy is something that we're very able in our sin to distort into something that we would prefer for ourselves, but something that's not sinless and that's not holy. In our sin, we often distort the idea of sympathy into something that will help justify or excuse our sin. Let me give you two examples. One way uh, that we do this is to deny that sympathy really exists anywhere, that anybody is sympathetic or knows what we're going through. Uh, This is such a common way that the devil uses to uh, encourage us, incite us, to justify ourselves in our sin and why we can't change and don't need to change with regard to sin. You hear your own heart saying things, or maybe you hear others at times saying, you don't know what it's like to be in my situation, right? You don't know what it's like to live with a wife of this kind or that kind, or a husband of this kind or that kind, right? Translation don't judge me for whatever sin I'm engaging in because I'm using that as my excuse, right? I'm feeling sorry for myself or I'm indulging myself outside of my marriage in some way or whatever it might be. Or you hear something like, well, you've never had to struggle to make ends meet, right? You've never had this sort of financial struggle that I have and so don't blame me for taking a little bit extra home from work or whatever it is that I might be doing that's sinful. No one knows what I'm going through. That's uh, such a common thought that comes into our our heads, Uh, a seed planted by the devil uh, to make us feel like sympathy isn't something that actually exists. Our situation is so different from the situation of others that it excuses our sinfulness. Thoughts such as these are designed to shield us from God's word, to shield us from accountability, and to make in some way or another what we're doing sinfully excusable, right? No one really sympathizes uh, 
so no one can really say that what I'm doing is wrong. Sometimes this kind of thinking uh, disguises itself in positive statements about other people. Well, the Lord just blessed him with a lot of ability. Everything's easy for him, so don't blame me for not working as hard. The Lord just blessed them with good children, so don't look at me for the fact that mine aren't really under good control or uh, being well-trained. And by the way, I've not ever yet known anybody who was just blessed with good children. They're all sinful. Uh, I would do better. I would try harder. I would obey more if I had this or that or the other that a lot of other people have, but I don't have it, and so that's why I'm not obeying the Lord. All these kinds of thoughts often seem reasonable to us at a given time. But in reality, they're all based in a a somewhat subtle but very uh, dangerous lie. And that lie is this. My situation is unique, and so my sin is excusable. But our passage this evening, both of our passages, cut right through that thinking, don't they? In reality, brothers and sisters, your situation, my situation, they are not unique. Jesus Christ, it says, has been tempted just as we are, tempted in every way, yet without sin. So the idea that no one sympathizes or knows what I'm going through in this situation of temptation is simply not correct. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Christ shared your exact specific circumstances in life, right? That he worked your job or that he was married to your spouse. Obviously, that wouldn't make sense. But what it means is something even more profound, and this is actually very liberating if you think about it. It means that sharing your exact circumstances is not what perfect sympathy requires, What it means is that our exact circumstances are not the real issue. We want to blame things on our circumstances. That gives us a sense of uh, freedom, as we might consider it, in, in our sinfulness. A lack of accountability. Well, it's my situation that's the problem. Those are just really the decoys. The situation is the decoy. The real issue is the temptation that lies underneath that situation or that circumstance. And that temptation, the Bible tells us, is something that Jesus knows perfectly. He's been besieged by every single kind of temptation that lies underneath every single kind of circumstance. And when he experienced all those same temptations as we do, he didn't sin. It's wrong then to act like our circumstances justify our sin. And it's wrong to say that no one understands what we're going through. There is someone, the Bible tells us this, who understands perfectly what we're going through and has a perfectly sympathetic heart towards us in it. He's been tempted in every way, tempted severely. He suffered underneath temptation. And thanks be to God, he did not give in even once. 
And so the Word of God comes to us graciously to expose this lie that we like to hold on to in our hearts, the lie of Satan. And it tells us the truth. You are not alone. You're not alone even in the hour of temptation. Your situation is one with which Christ sympathizes. And as he does so, he calls you and he equips you, enables you to resist and to obey. Well, another way that we sinfully distort the idea of sympathy is to think of sympathy as compassion with us in our sin. Not just that sympathy doesn't exist at all, but that the sympathy that we're looking for is sympathy with our sinful thoughts about our sin or our sinful indulgence, our sinful enjoyment of sin. How alluring it is. This way of thinking turns sympathy into a kind of knowing glance or a pat on the back. Yeah, I'd be angry too if someone did that to me. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear that other people condone what I did. Man, your neighbor's wife really is attractive. I would lust after her too if I lived where you live. The distortion of sympathy that our flesh often desires, we feel like we need someone to feel the same way about our sin as we do. Someone that shares our particular fondness for a given sin or a particular weakness for a particular sin make us feel less guilty, and so we distort sympathy in this way. We're tempted to talk to each other in unhelpful ways, and in the name of sympathy, I hear Christians say to each other, well, you know, we're all doing the same things, so what? Well, it just means kind of don't worry about it, right? What do you expect? Nothing's going to change, of course, right? Sympathy becomes a confirmation in our sin. But our passage, again, shows us that sympathy of that kind is not the true and the perfect sympathy that we need. Sympathy of this kind just aids us in our sin. It's obviously not what Christ himself provides, who did not sin. We don't look to Jesus Christ to wink at our sin. Hey, don't worry about it. Everybody's doing it. The sympathy that Christ provides it promotes holiness. It's not a sympathy of knowing just how you feel when you think about your sin sinfully. Instead, it's a sympathy of knowing just how miserable you feel when you resist your sin. That it doesn't feel good a lot of times. It's a form of denial, of self-denial, that at the moment is far from pleasurable It's a war, the Bible describes it as. It's a dying, dying to sin. That's the way the Bible describes it, right? Romans 6. Christ's sympathy is a sympathy of knowing just how miserable you feel when you resist sin. Chapter 2, verse 18 says that Christ suffered when tempted. And the point here is not that Christ suffered under just how sweet sin is and that that fake kind of suffering that we might talk about, uh, but that Christ knows the bitterness of the fight against sin, the intensity of it, the blood and guts nature of that battle, of denying sin, of mortifying it, of putting it to death, 
and of experiencing the painful consequences of doing so. The suffering of resistance to desire even when his body screamed for food that he would not give it as he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. The suffering of poverty and shame when he would not grasp for power and for glory for himself but waited for his father to glorify him. After his death, the suffering of humiliation, the suffering of abandonment when life was being drained out of his body on the cross, people mocking him, and yet he persevered in that. In these ways, Christ knows the burden of temptation perfectly, the burden of resisting. We could say, in this sense, nobody knows the burden of resisting temptation as fully as Christ does because no one has resisted it more than him. Every single time, every single temptation, never once letting up in that fight, never once indulging, never once turning off. That dissonance, quieting, that struggle, And so we look to Jesus as our Savior, as somebody who knows perfectly, even better than we do, what it means to resist, what it means to fight, indeed, what it means to suffer in the cause of seeking to be holy before the Lord. Jesus sympathizes with you in the hour of temptation. This kind of sympathy, brothers and sisters, is exactly what we need. It's not the sympathy of indulging sin, but it's the sympathy of camaraderie in a battle. The sympathy that says, join me in fighting. I know just how dreadful it feels. I've been in that trench. I've been in that war. And I'm with you when you are in it too, sympathetically supporting and praying for you every step of the way. I know what that hour of resistance is, the hour of battling fear, when you feel like fear is going to overcome you, but you seek to resist it through the Lord's help. I know the hour of bearing up under grief. Whatever hour it is that you experience, the crossroads of sin's testing, Jesus Christ tells you that he went through it. He went through it alone so that you don't have to. Christ's sympathy then is perfect because it's sinless and it's holy. Well, thirdly, Christ's sympathy is perfect not only because it's complete and because it's sinless, but also because it is powerful and effective. Brothers and sisters, Christ's sympathy does not leave us where we are in the moment of temptation, tossed here and there by our circumstance, tossed here and there by temptation, but Christ's sympathy more than any sympathy in the world brings with it true power true help in our time of need, and for this reason, it is a perfect sympathy. You see, sympathy all by itself 
in, in, the, in the narrowest sense of the term, is of very limited benefit if the person who's sympathizing with me actually can't do anything to help me, right? I feel very badly for you, but I also can't do anything to help you. Well, that's nice as far as it goes, but it doesn't do a lot, relatively empty. But that, of course, is not the way Jesus Christ sympathizes with us. The sympathy of Christ is not an empty one. It's not one uh, that's sort of in name only, but it's powerful. It's infinitely powerful because his sympathy for us in our temptation and in our weakness is the sympathy that drives him forward in his priestly ministry for us, his being our priest in heaven. It animates and directs his service to us as prophet, priest, and king. And chapter 2, verse 14 says that Christ entered into our situation, partaking of flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the power, uh, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver us from the fear of death. The sympathy of Christ is something that he has because he joined our situation, and he joined our situation so that he can deliver us from fear. Chapter 2, verse 17 says, He was made like us in every way so that he might make propitiation for our sins, satisfying God's wrath. He brings us the great help that we need, the forgiveness of our sins, restoration to God the Father. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 say that because he sympathizes with our weakness, we can find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. The sympathy of Christ then has great power, the power of his entire ministry as a priest. In the past, he lived and died for us. In the present, he continues to intercede for us before God to pray for us. The power of his death, the power of his resurrection, the power of his intercession, all constantly at work for us to forgive us when we do sin, to constantly restore us to enable and strengthen us towards greater resistance to sin. And so the point of our passage is not just that some person somewhere knows what you're going through. The point of our passage is much better than that. It's that your high priest in heaven at God's right hand knows what you're going through. And he ministers before God's throne with heartfelt compassion. Jesus Christ doesn't minister as our high priest coldly or begrudgingly or reluctantly or not entirely sure about you. He doesn't say to you, I, you know, I know I can help, but I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm ready to. Not sure that I'm willing to. You haven't shown me enough. And he executes his duties with great urgency, fully knowing exactly what you feel and how difficult life is. The sympathy of Christ is powerful because through it, Christ compassionately and knowledgeably brings you himself. He knows just what to pray for, for you, because he's gone through 
the same things. He graciously welcomes you before the throne of God, granting you strength and sustenance as only a sympathetic person can. What are we to do then, brothers and sisters, throughout our lives, at every moment, but particularly as we face temptation, weakness, and trial, and difficulty, but to go to Christ, go to the sympathetic and merciful Jesus Christ in heaven, go to him over and over. seems simple in a way, and in a way it is, and yet, for some reason, it's so often not what we do. We wait, thinking that we're supposed to do our best first by ourselves, and then maybe go. Or we go to our friends or our neighbors to look for merely human advice, merely human sympathy, maybe even sinful sympathy. Procrastinate. We don't feel certain about what God thinks of us. We feel guilty. We don't feel able to go before him in his throne. And yet our passage urges us to do so anyway. That we must go to the throne of God because through Christ, the throne of the Almighty God of heaven and earth is for us a throne of grace. And it's not a throne of reluctant grace, but a throne of sympathetic grace where we can and where we should and where we will find help in our time of need. And so we need to go to Christ because there's no one else we can go to that provides what he does. Chapter 4, verse 16 says to us not that we should go to the local priest here on earth, not that we should go find someone more godly who can somehow get us a hearing before God, but that we should ourselves approach the throne of grace in heaven and that we should do so with confidence through Jesus Christ. Christ knows what it's like to be weak. He feels for you in that weakness and he bids you to come Come to him with your weakness. Come to him in your weakness. Come to him with your suffering and with your sorrow. And you will not come and find an awkward silence. You won't come and find a disapproving look. You come and you'll find mercy come and you'll find grace, both to forgive you for what you have done and to help you in the things that you seek not to do by his grace, and even to help you seek not to do it at all. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, as I urge myself, to stay in Christ's sympathy, to stay in the fight. Christ doesn't sympathize with us in order to lessen our view of our sin. He forgives our sin, but he sympathizes with us as we resist it, and he graciously calls us into that battle 
which he has already himself experienced. So I urge you not to grow weary, and I urge you not to grow discouraged. I urge you not to stand far away from Christ. If you deal with loneliness or desire or fear or grief, whatever it may be, come to the throne of grace, the throne for you of sympathetic mercy and help in your time of need. Avail yourself of that. Cast your cares upon your perfectly sympathetic Savior. You'll find nothing greater anywhere else. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that in our sin, we have all manner of irrational responses. But we pray that in your mercy, It would help us to do the only thing that truly makes sense here as your children, that we would go to you through Jesus Christ and find that mercy and that grace that we need. Help us to do this more and more. Help us to see our Savior more and more for who he is and the perfect, unparalleled sympathy that he gives to us. Grant us this mercy in the fight. We ask it in his name. Amen. Let's respond to...